Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Heming Brainiac List podcast. It's the best podcast ever. Hang on, let me just adjust my volume there. Um, what are we doing? What are we doing? We're talking about chapter 35 of, of Human Bondage. Is Philip done with Mrs. Wilkinson? Is he done with it? Is he moving on, on, on along down the old dusty highway? Swim said, sorry, my brain's not working at the moment. This is going to be a terrible podcast. I'm just going to say that up front. Swim said the mama fish. He said, in this chapter, my funny bone was tickled. In your elbow? That's weird. Regarding Miss Wilkinson, Philip says to himself, what rot women talk after reading Howard's flowery prose regarding the affair. Yeah, Howard's letter was awful. What were they saying about Howard being such a good letter writer? That was, ugh, drivel. Um... After reading Howard's flowery prose, Philip says to himself, What damned rot? The irony is Philip himself talked rot to Miss Wilkinson and wrote rot, wrote rot to Howard. Hayward. Sorry. And Trevor says, These chapters with Miss Wilkinson have been the lightest and most humorous yet. The author has fun describing people. It's amusing to imagine how he would describe me. I think it would end with something like Philip made a point to avoid her in times when he desired a quiet, sympathetic ear, for he found her uncommonly dull. Oh, come on then, Tripper, I'm sure you're not dull. At least, not uncommonly. Uh, fix the blues said, well, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Philip is done with Miss Wilkinson. I'm curious... Was this sort of writing common in 1915, or just utterly scandalous? Does anyone know? I'm not as familiar with heaps of classics, and I don't really recall sex being alluded to so flippantly in what I have read. Um, I mean, some some writers were um, more... What's the word? Uh, forthcoming... What's the word? You know what I mean. Some authors, yeah, their books were very focused on sex and they were quite scandalous, more so than this one. But then quite a lot, the norm was less because it was scandalous, yeah. Um, in saying that I am reading Edith Wharton's Age of Innocence and that was published in 1920, there is a mention of affairs in that. Yeah, I mean, they're always talking about affairs, aren't they? Anyway, I enjoyed this chapter, even if it was a bit cringe of old Miss Wilkinson and Philip was behaving ever so beastly. Interesting to reflect that not too much has changed in a hundred years. Root teenage boys, their hormones and their short-term goals. Swim said the mama fish, she said, I found this article called Evolution of Sex in Literature. Examples are from the Bible, Shakespeare, 1910 E.M. Forster's Howard's End, and 2005 Zadie Smith's On Beauty. The short answer is that no, it wasn't scandalous. In 1910, sex took a very different turn in Howard's End. In this novel, we see almost no representation of sex, but be it figuratively or literally, in fact, we see almost no description of any intimacy. Characters do form relationships, but sexual intercourse and sexual actions are simply implied to the reader as it is also implied in Of Human Bondage. Uh, the article goes on to say, In the Bible, sex is a reality, but not deeply discussed. This follows in Shakespeare, although it is more apparent and brought to the audience's attention. 
Yeah, I mean, um, oh, well, Shakespeare wrote a lot about sex and a lot of really quite crude jokes. I mean, if you read the f- opening chapter or scene or whatever it's called of Romeo and Juliet, um, it's really pretty full on what they're joking about at the start there. He's talking about, um, oh, well, I won't even say, but have a read of it. It's uh, two young men being very crass about some women. Um, And if you read it with a kind of a modern translation, you realize that a lot of the plays on words are really rude um, and really funny. They're actually really funny. Like, there's the play uh, Much Ado About Nothing. You might have heard that one. That's a Shakespearean play. Shakespeare used a lot of uh, euphemisms and and metaphors and and plays on words and nothing the word nothing was a a euphemism for uh for vagina essentially um and so which i think that's kind of funny in itself but then even funnier is that that means that the just the title of that play was a pun it was a play on words rather a double meaning and that's pretty clever and pretty funny and very rude but yeah, so much ado about nothing essentially translates into like a, a whole lot of fuss about pussy. Is <laughs> pretty much the title of his play, and he did that very intentionally, and all all throughout his writing, it was like that. So yeah, he didn't shy away from it, but then I guess he always obscured it with plays on words and and things like that. Starfall fifteen said. Reading The Age of Innocence as well, some years ago I watched the movie adaptation and a scene where one... Uh, okay, this is going on about a different book. I'm going to skip this one just because um, we're getting sidetracked by whole different books. Jan Brunt said, I really feel for Miss Wilkinson. She has to work for her living, but in that work she is constantly exposed to a lifestyle that she could never hope to have. I don't know if she ever wanted kids, but she helps to raise the children of her employees employers uh sorry they grow up and are unlikely to maintain any relationship with her now at nearly 40 it's unlikely she will ever get married or have a family of her own no wonder she is weepy um all right that is the discussion um sorry i'm trying to Lock into my podcasting thing. Uh, I'm a such a bad podcaster. I'm sorry. I'm out of it. <laughs> I just realized like I just wasn't talking then because I was trying to log into the podcast app. Let's read the next chapter, which I believe is called Chapter 36. A few days later, Philip went to London. The curate had recommended rooms in Barnes, and these these Philip engaged by what? And these Philip engaged by letter at fourteen shillings a week. He reached them in the evening, and the landlady, a funny little old woman with a shrivelled body and a deeply wrinkled face, had prepared high tea for him. Most of the sitting room was taken up by the sideboard and a square table. Against one wall was a sofa covered with horsehair and by the fireplace an armchair to match. There was a white antimacassar 
over the back of it and on the seat because the springs were broken a hard cushion after having his tea he unpacked and arranged his books then he sat down and tried to read but he was depressed the silence in the street made him slightly uncomfortable and he felt very much alone next day he got up early he put on his tailcoat and the tall hat which he had worn at school but it was very shabby and he made up his mind to stop at the stores on his way to the office and buy a new one when he had done this he found himself in plenty of time and so walked along the strand the office of messrs herbert carter and co was in a little street of chancery lane and he had to ask his way two or three times he felt that people were staring at him a great deal and once he took off his hat to see whether by chance the label had been left on when he arrived he knocked at the door but no one answered and looking at his watch he found it was barely half past nine he supposed he was too early he went away and ten minutes later returned to find an office boy with a long nose pimply face and a scotch accent opening the door philip asked for mr herbert carter he had not come yet when will he be here between ten and half past i'd better wait said philip what are you wait what are you wanting asked the office boy philip was nervous but tried to hide the fact by a jocose manner well i'm going to work here if you have no objection oh you're the new articled clerk you better come in mr goodworthy will be here in a while uh philip walked in and as he did sorry philip walked in and as he did so he saw the office boy he was about the same age as philip and called himself a junior clerk look at his foot he flushed and sitting down hid it behind the other he looked round the room it was dark and very dingy it was lit by a skylight there were three rows of desks in it and again them high stools over the chimney piece was a dirty engraving of a prize fight presently a clerk came in and then another they glanced at philip and in an undertone asked the office boy philip found his name was mcdougall who he was a whistle blew and mcdougall got up <clears throat> mr goodworthy mr good mr goodworthy's come he's the managing clerk shall i tell him you're here yes please said philip the office boy went out and in a moment returned will you come this way philip followed him across the passage and was shown into a room small and barely furnished in which a little thin man was standing with his back to the fireplace he was much below the middle height but his large head which seemed to hang loosely on his body gave him an odd ungainliness his features were wide and flattened he had prominent pale eyes his thin hair was sandy he wore whiskers that were that grew unevenly on his face and in places where you would have expected the hair to grow thickly there was no hair at all his skin was pasty and yellow he held out his hand to philip and when he smiled showed badly decayed teeth he spoke with a patronizing and at the same time a timid air as though he sought to assume an importance which he did not feel he said he hoped philip would like the work there was a good deal of drudgery about it but when you got used to it it was interesting and one made money that was the chief thing wasn't it he laughed with his odd mixture of superiority and shyness 
Mrs. Carter will be here presently, he said. He's a little late on Monday mornings sometimes. I'll call you when he comes. In the meantime, I must give you something to do. Do you know anything about bookkeeping or accounts? I'm afraid not, answered Philip. I didn't suppose you would. They don't teach you these things at school that are much use in business, I'm afraid. He considered for a moment. I think I can find you something to do. He went into the next room and after a little while came out with a large cardboard box. It contained a vast number of letters in great disorder and he told Philip to sort them out and arrange them in alphabetical order according to the names of the writers. I'll take you to the room in which the articled clerk generally sits. There's a very nice fellow in it. His name is Watson. He's a son of Watson, Cragg and Thompson, you know, the brewers. He's spending a year with us to learn business. Mr. Goodworthy led Philip through the dingy office where now six or eight clerks were working into a narrow room behind it had made into a, had been made into a separate apartment by a glass partition and here they found Watson sitting back in a chair reading The Sportsman. He was a large stout young man elegantly dressed and he looked up as Mr. Goodworthy entered. He asserted his position by calling the managing clerk Goodworthy. The managing clerk objected to the familiarity and pointedly called him Mr. Watson but Mr. Watson... Instead of seeing that it was a rebuke, accepted the title as a tribute to his gentlemanliness. I see they've scratched Rigoletto, he said to Philip, as soon as they were left alone. Have they, said Philip, who knew nothing about horse racing. He looked with awe upon Watson's beautiful clothes. His tail coat fitted him perfectly, and there was a valuable pin artfully stuck in the middle of an enormous tie. On the chimney piece rested his tall hat. It was saucy and bell-shaped and shiny. Philip felt himself very shabby. Watson began to talk of hunting. It was such an infernal bore having to waste one's time in an infernal office. He would only be able to hunt on Saturdays and shooting he had ripping invitations all over the country, and of course, he had to refuse them. It was infernal luck, but he wasn't going to put up with it long. He was only in this internal hole for a year, and then he was going into the business, and he would hunt four days a week and get all the shooting there was. You've got five years of it, haven't you? He said, waving his arm around the tiny room. I suppose so, said Philip. I dare say I shall see something of you. Carter does our accounts, you know. Philip was somewhat overpowered by the young gentleman's condescension. At Blackstable they had always looked upon brewing with civil contempt. The vicar made little jokes about the beerage, and it was a surprising experience for Philip to discover that Watson was such an important and magnificent fellow. He had been to Winchester and to Oxford, and his conversation impressed the fact upon one with frequency. When he discovered the details of Philip's education, his manner became more patronising still. Of course, if one doesn't go to a public school, those sort of schools are the next best thing, aren't they? Philip asked about the other men in the office. Oh, I don't bother about them much, you know, said Watson. Carter's not a bad sort. We have him to dine now and then. All the rest are awful bounders. Presently, Watson applied himself to some work he had in hand, and Philip set about sorting his letters. Then Mr. Goodworthy came in to say that Mr. Carter had arrived. He took Philip into a large room next door to his own. There was a big desk in it, and a couple of big armchairs. A turkey carpet adorned the floor, 
and the walls were decorated with sporting prints. Mr. Carter was sitting at the desk and got up to shake hands with Philip. He was dressed in a long frock coat. He looked like a military man. His moustache was waxed. His grey hair was short and neat. He held himself upright. He talked in a breezy way. He lived at Enfield. He was very keen on games and the good of the country. He was an officer in the Hertfordshire Yeomanry and chairman of the Conservative Association. When he was told that a local magnate had said no one would take him for a city man, he felt that he had not lived in vain. He talked to Philip in a pleasant off-hand fashion. Mr. Goodworthy would look after him. Watson was a nice fellow, perfect gentleman, good sportsman. Did Philip hunt? Pity the sport. The sport for the gentleman. Didn't have much chance of hunting now. Had to leave that to his son. His son was at Cambridge. He'd sent him to the rugby. Fine school rugby. Nice class of boys there. In a couple of years, his son would be articled. That would be nice for Philip. He'd like his son. Thorough sportsman. He hoped Philip would get on well and like the work. He mustn't miss his lectures. They were getting up the tone of profession. They wanted gentlemen in it. Well, well, Mr. Goodworthy was there. If he wanted to know anything, Mr. Goodworthy would tell him. Was What was his handwriting like? Oh, well, Mr. Goodworthy would see about that. Philip was overwhelmed by so much gentlemanliness. In East Anglia, they knew who were gentlemen and who weren't, but the gentlemen didn't talk about it. All right, there we go. There's another chapter for you. Philip's got a new gig. Kind of an interesting place, interesting setting. Have your say about this one at the subreddit. Thank you one billion times for, for listening. And I'll see you tomorrow.